Are you someone who enjoys a good glass of wine but is never sure just what to get? Indulge your inner enophile and take the guesswork out of wine by signing up for the National Review Wine Club. All of our wines are selected by a team with more than 150 years of collective experience buying, judging, and making wine. We weed through the thousands of wines out there to select the very best of the best and deliver it straight to your door, all at an unbeatable price. Not only that, the Wine Club is also a great way to support our valuable conservative journalism here at National Review. A portion of every order goes to helping us grow our team and editorial impact. And there's no time better than today. Our introductory special delivers four of our hand-selected wines straight to your door, for only $29.99. So head over to nationalreviewwineclub.com today and get ready to kick back with an exquisite bottle of wine in the comfort of your own home. Does Ron DeSantis have the right ideas to revive the American economy? Is Hunter Biden the David Copperfield or David Blaine of access? And are parts of the United States about to become uninhabitable thanks to global warming? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Philip, Phil Klein, Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode are Babel. And fast-growing trees. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim Garrity, we had a widely anticipated, or at least somewhat anticipated, economic speech from Ron DeSantis. Yesterday in New Hampshire, this is part of the reset, part of an attempt to widen out his message. We saw some of this in his 10-minute pitch at the Lincoln Dinner in Des Moines on Friday, and this is more fleshing out of an economic vision. Ten points, a lot of it wrapped in a populist rhetoric about how corporations, the elites, and China have been the undoing of America and especially it's middle class, but I think that the substance of the speech was quite sound. But what did you make of it? No, I largely agree. I think it's safe to say that the DeSantis reboot is a very needed move. And I think a refocus or a greater emphasis on economic issues is another much needed move. Um, the unofficial or official slogan, Florida is where woke goes to die has taken DeSantis as far as it's going to take him. He, he needs to broaden and reach out to people for whom the culture war, it's just not the preeminent issue. I'm not saying those issues don't matter. I'm not saying those issues shouldn't be discussed. Um, but I, I wrote Monday's jolt over this very, you know, I, I think there was a, C, it was a CBS News YouGov poll that I felt was very clarifying. Because if you look at surveys and ask people, what is the most important issue on your mind? Very often the economy is number one by a wide margin. You know, there are there people who care about culture war, social issues, things like that? Yes. But people still have a great deal of economic anxiety. And you can find quite a few economists and liberal columnists and Biden administration officials, all kind of this, man, the economy is awesome. Why isn't Joe Biden getting any credit for it? 
Well, the short answer is the American people largely don't feel like the economy is awesome. They, yes, the unemployment rate is very low. Yes, the consumer price index inflation numbers are getting are significantly better now than they were a year ago. What I tried to lay out because, like this, this YouGov poll asked people, "Why do you feel uh, the economy is not doing well? And do you feel about this nationally and for other people? Or do you feel about this for you and your life and your personal finances?" Message was very clear from these people. People still feel the effects of inflation. The inflation rate might be around 3% right now, but prices skyrocketed in 2022. They've increased slightly from a year ago, but they still feel like life is unaffordable. And you see this in all kinds of different measures from home prices to car prices to gasoline. It's not as high as it was last summer, but it's still not cheap. And there's kind of been this, you know, you ask people directly, do you feel like your wages, what your, your take-home pay is keeping up with increased prices because of inflation. 70% said no. This is what Americans are talking about. This is what Americans want to hear about. This is what's on their minds, much more than the Disney Corporation. And again, I'm not saying that issue doesn't matter. I'm just saying you know, there's going to be certain issues that are going to be very niche, that are going to be appeal to some small you know, sub-segment of the Republican primary voters. And then there are issues that affect everybody, like inflation. And I kind of just feel like you know both him and you... So the measuring stick I used for this Monday was I looked at... The Twitter feed of Ron DeSantis's campaign really wasn't any mention of uh, of economics. Now, obviously, he, this was before Monday. He was going to put up his big, uh, he was going to give this big speech, and I don't think that what he was talking about were unimportant issues. Uh, DeSantis talked about Biden's border crisis, indisputably important issue. Kamala Harris's inaccurate attack on Florida's history education standards. If we talk about this too loudly, Charlie Cook will burst through the door. Uh, government colluding with big corporations to censor information from the public and elites who want to plunge society to lockdown dystopia. Look, all of those are important issues, but I don't think any of them are being on the forefront of people's minds the way the cost of living, the economy, and inflation are. And I just kind of feel like if you're the Republican, yeah, if you're the Republican presidential candidate, you should probably talk about things that care that lots of people care about. It's a good way to kind of get people to sit up and take notice. Um, and of course, Trump is talking about Jack Smith and Mar-a-Lago security tapes and his poll numbers. And, you know, Donald Trump's favorite issue is always Donald Trump. So I, to me, this is necessary. This, this is something DeSantis absolutely had to do. And honestly, if, uh, if the New York Times poll is right, you know, Trump and DeSantis are the only guys we really should be talking about. So, Phil, you're a free market guy. So what did you think of this? Substantively, it, it, uh, he addressed spending. You know, it was kind of low down on the number of points, but it's in there when it's, that's largely missing from Donald Trump's agenda, or at least things that, that Trump sincerely cares about. And then there's also a real, a real emphasis on how we have to be uh, wary of churning too many people into uh, these four-year degree factories in the hopes that they're uh, going to come out better when very often they don't, and we need to think about other ways to credential people, which I think is is something that's been uh, written about and talked about a lot in the think tank world and am among writers, and has begun to break through to Republican politicians, which is a good thing. But again, there was a, a, a lot of uh, anti anti elite rhetoric. Yeah, so I do think that we have to separate between the speech and the substantive proposals. The speech itself had a lot of very popular sounding themes, a lot of class, class warfare things. If, if you looked at some parts of the, if you plucked some parts of the speech out and just looked at them in a vacuum, 
you might mistake them for something that you'd hear from Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there was a lot about corporations and wealthy getting richer while the middle class are being punished. And, you know, we're not cogs in the wheels of a global economy. It's, it's, there were sort of a lot of lines like that. I'd say that the substance of the, the proposals, it was a lot of conventional Republican ideas, things like low taxes, deregulation, um, school choice, all things that a broad consensus of Republicans believe in um, and that um, would su be supportive of or sympathetic to. I'd say that a, a few points that are worth more scrutiny, one is even as he sort of talks about getting away from the dependence of the four-year college degree, he's also calling for uh, allowing student loans to be discharged through bankruptcy, which to me would just fuel the higher education uh, bubble even more if people thought that they could rack up a hundred grand in debt and then just declare bankruptcy when they get out of college and by the time they're 30 it's wiped out of their record anyway. Um, so to me that would be a really bad uh, idea um, that you know, I await further details of. Also, on the, the spending front, it's good that he at least says, in theory, we're going to rein in spending. But what he's talking about in terms of vetoing spending bills that Congress sends him that are excessive, I mean, that's really small ball in terms of the overall problem that we have. Um, he doesn't mention... Medicare and Social Security, he's talked about how emphatically that's not something to deal with now. Um, and the, the reality is, I mean, within the next president's term, the Medicare trust fund is going to be depleted and the Social Security trust fund is going to hit a crisis point a few years after that. And if nothing is done, um, it's going to result in drastic automatic cuts to seniors that he says he wants to avoid. So he's going to have to deal with that, whether he likes it or not. And, and the reality is, as much as I and all of us like tax cuts, the from a budgetary standpoint, if you want to make permanent the various um, uh, Trump tax cuts, then you're going to have to cut spending much more drastically than he outlines just to keep pace. I mean, the, the way to sustain low tax rates over time is to get spending under control, and this would not do that. Do, do that. But again, I, I think there's this, this distinction between what's happening rhetorically and the conventional Republican stuff. It is certainly... Uh, much to my uh, chagrin, a, a staple of Republican politics to talk about all the waste, fraud, and abuse that we're going to cut out of, out of uh, spending without doing anything um, uh, real. So in that sense, he is sort of uh, following the tradition of Republicans. So no, Jim mentioned the polling. Let's delve into the polling. We had this New York Times polling both of the primary and a prospective uh, general election matchup between Trump and Biden. Primary polling came out where uh, 
We've seen other polls come out recently. Trump 54, if I'm not mistaken, and DeSantis 17. Everyone else three or so. So DeSantis has taken a step down. <clears throat> he was around 30 in some polling earlier in the year, and it's just been the steady drip, drip, drip downwards. I was looking at the Real Clear Politics average last night, and I think in, in the five latest national polls that at least Real Clear considers reputable enough to include in their average, Trump, uh, sorry, by uh, DeSantis is is below 20. I think at 18 is his, his highest mark. And those uh, last five polls, uh, Trump gets much higher ratings on strength, being a strong leader, than DeSantis gets also much higher ratings on being fun. And I think actually both of those things are recognizably a huge part of Trump's appeal. DeSantis is slightly more likable than Trump. Uh, DeSantis's favorable ratings are comparable to Trump, but Trump's a little higher. And then the big dif difference is, is Trump has many, many more people who, who consider him very favorable, have a very favorable view of him. And those folks obviously are all in. That's, that's the core Trump base, you know, 37% or so. And then you had this general election matchup also matches some, some polling we've seen with uh, Trump and Biden tied at 43. What do you make of it? Well, so I watched Ron DeSantis' speech when, he, when the candidate advertises a big set piece speech. It's meant to be watched. It's not meant to be read. So I watched it. <clears throat> and I could quibble with this, that, the other. And I thought substantively it was quite good. But you can't watch his performance and say the guy is much of a performer. He's utterly affectless. And maybe that's just a feature of him being so much of a details guy. Um, but he's never going to win a popularity contest against a true performer like Donald Trump. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, he doesn't take himself especially seriously. He has a sense of humor. He can laugh at himself. He can laugh at his environment. And he does look like he's having a blast almost everywhere he goes, with the exception of when he's facing a federal indictment and just recently just was arraigned or deposed uh, and has to read off a teleprompter so that he doesn't get himself in trouble with the judge. Other than that, he's having a blast. And Ron DeSantis does not project that, which is why I think that fun number is really quite valuable. I don't think we have mm -hmm. trends on fun, how fun mm -hmm. the candidate is. But in this stage of the race, as early as it is, I think that really does register. It's sort of a functional equivalent of the who would you rather have a beer with question, mm -hmm. which is kind yeah. of a metric that matters, whether you think it should or not. It does. And I think that has a profound effect on um, Republican views of Ron DeSantis. He has some ground to make up with Republicans, not really on policy terms, but on the notion that he's going to be an effective representative of their interests on the campaign trail. And style is a very big part of that. When it comes to the general election match matchups, this New York Times Siena poll did not test Ron DeSantis against Joe Biden. And I wish they had. Um, it would give us more of a baseline to, to analyze. But they did analyze uh, Donald Trump versus um, Joe Biden in a in a head-to-head -head rematch. And the top lines are 43%, 43% tied. And that's fueling this narrative that Donald Trump's surrogates have been retailing for the better part of two months now, which is fueled by polling, really early polling, that suggests it's a real tight race. And who knows 
whether Ron DeSantis is the best candidate to face Joe Biden in a general election. In fact, if you were looking at the averages of the polling right now, it doesn't look that way, although we're talking about less than a point's difference between the two of them. It does look like Donald Trump is competitive. But if you go into those details, if you look under the hood of this poll and read the crosstabs, Joe Biden has a much easier job of this thing. Joe Biden's weighed down by the fact that 83% of his partisans support him compared to 88% of Republicans. 42% of Democrats want another nominee. All those Democrats will come home by the general election. By contrast, Donald Trump's legal troubles and his post-election conduct are really seriously weighing him down. The number of people who think that Donald Trump didn't commit a serious federal crime, all people, not Republicans, Republicans are immune to this, all, all voters, 35% don't think he committed a serious crime. A majority do. Of those 35%, only 27% say he didn't do anything wrong. So there are a lot of people who think he did a lot of things wrong, even though they don't rise to the level of serious federal crime. And when it comes to his post-January 6th uh, conduct, 37% um, of people who think this country is in, in serious trouble think Donald Trump uh, it jeopardized American democracy. If you're Democrats and you're looking at these numbers, you think, wow, half my job is done. I don't have to have to spend the first part of the general election defining this candidate. I don't have to increase his negatives. I don't have to establish the choice narrative rather than a referendum narrative, which is traditionally the dynamic that defines incumbent re-election cycles. Half that work is done for me. I can devote all those resources to down-ballot races. The notion here that he is, he's the best candidate to face Joe Biden rests only on these very superficial top-line numbers, none of which are supported really by the crosstabs. And Donald Trump is dining out on the fact that a lot of Republicans just aren't really digging into the data right now. So, Jim, these these polls, another effect of them, they're just a killer for DeSantis, right? Well, well, uh, Noah mentioned this, but it's really hard to be out there saying he's unelectable when you have polls showing him tied or ahead, and including reputable polls, reputable polls like the New York Times. And I'm in a different place than some of my my colleagues, especially Andy McCarthy, who who uh, res responded to uh, some, something I wrote by saying, uh, writing once again that just. Tr flat out Trump can't win in a corner post this this morning. I think he makes a very compelling case. It has to do with a, a lot with just how the race will develop over the next year with all this, the uh, legal entanglements hanging over Donald Trump's head. But I think it's it's a toss up there. The, those things are negative uh, uh, potentials for uh, Trump, but they're, they're also negative potential for, for Biden, whether it's a recession, whether it's um, the, the, a smoking gun in the scandals or a, a bad fall or something of that nature. So I, I'm, a, I'm a coin flip guy in a, in a general at the moment. Okay. I'm not a coin flip guy in the general. I also don't think that Trump is unelectable, as Andy asserts. I, I think that one, we should heed the lessons of 2016. Scenarios that seem unthinkable can happen. And candidates that seem unappealing to a certain slice of the uh, demographic most likely to discuss and analyze presidential races can end up being much more appealing to the electorate at large than suspected. I, I think the problem with the argument of, well, you know, this way, when we see Trump being close or even slightly ahead in some of the head-to-head -head polling right now. I think what we see is the fact that 
by almost every measure, John uh, Joe, Joe Biden is a very weak incumbent. And a lot of that stems from being 80 years old. A lot of that stems from the fact that he'll be turning 82 after the election. Biden was never the most gifted communicator, even in the best of circumstances in his younger years. And now he goes out and he does events like Herzog, his appearance with Herzog, where he's mumbling and he's soft and he just... He looks like he's barely alive, never mind, you know, capable of being president. The problem with these scenarios in which you can envision Trump winning, and I think all of your, the ones you list there uh, are the two most likely and are the ones that are too, mo- that, you know, uh, the, the ones that are uh, Republicans almost would have to count on in the case of a Donald Trump nomination. We don't know what the economy is going to be like in the fall of 2024. Uh, you can, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, people are feeling very anxious about the economy, even though the official numbers are good. Um, and so you can imagine the scenario getting worse and Americans saying, you know what, I felt pretty good for a bunch of the Trump years. Let's roll the dice on this guy one more time and see what happens. Or you could see Biden stumbling and bumbling and, and you know, really sounding incoherent or, uh, God forbid, having some health issue and not winning. And I think, you know, if for some reason he was unable to finish the first term, Kamala Harris is not a particularly strong substitute either. So in those scenarios, you can imagine Trump winning. I still don't think it's easy. I still think that the electoral college math is challenging. I find it interesting that the John, that John Fetterman, uh, the senator from Pennsylvania, a Democrat who uh, communicated through his screen, um, that he thinks Trump will be more competitive in Pennsylvania than DeSantis would be. <laughs> I think you can find a couple demographics here and there where Trump might be a little more competitive than uh, than DeSantis or another Republican would be. But I think it's more than offset with the, the degree to which he alienates the soccer moms, the suburbanites, the white-collar professionals, a whole bunch of people who were perfectly comfortable voting Republican until the Trump era came along. So, I, look, is Trump impossible to elect? No. Trump is very challenging to elect. And the circumstances in which Trump gets elected, almost any other Republican nominee would get elected as well. Yeah, I, I think people tend to lean on the electability argument a little too much because the it, the case is really the the administration would perhaps be a chaotic disaster. There's a strong chance it'd be a chaotic disaster, and he's basically just not well suited to being president of the United States. But if you're Ron DeSantis, saying that puts you in Chris Christie territory, so you're, you're not going to say it. Instead, you're going to 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 go to the uh, the electability and the governing. Uh, effectiveness and and do it do it very uh, implicitly and indirectly at least for the moment. Phil Klein, exit question to you. Let's double barrel it. Percentage odds at this moment that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee from zero to a hundred. And if you're given two choices, perhaps unfairly, which of these do you think is more likely? Ron DeSantis becomes the Republican nominee, or Ron DeSantis serves out the rest of his term as an unpopular governor. In Florida, so I'd say that um, on the first, I think I'm up to about a 75 to 80 percent chance that Trump's the nominee. Let's just say 75 percent, um, since we're still in early August. Um, I would say right now, um, it's more likely that DeSantis ends up serving out his time as governor. Although I think the question is whether or not um, DeSantis turns it around enough to be a viable option in 2028, in, given if, if there is a post-Trump era, whenever that comes, um, whether or not uh, we return back to the tradition among Republicans 
of going to the sort of next in line. If if DeSantis turns it around enough to to give Trump um, a run for his money, but still loses and and maintains his fans, I think maybe that's something that could happen. So he might not. I, be- I like. Yeah, I like how we've gone from saying when there's a Trump uh, post-Trump era to if, <laughs> like if ever there's a post-Trump era, no Rothman percentage odds for Trump, and will DeSantis be the more likely to be the nominee or an unpopular governor of Florida? I think at this particular stage of the race, Donald Trump has slightly better than even odds to be the nominee. I'd going to say about fifty-five percent. That doesn't mean Ron DeSantis has a forty-five percent chance to be the nominee. It's broken. But up. you're still the the field has forty-five percent chance. The field has a forty-five percent chance, and I and yeah, that's, I that's bold. I like it. There's only one other person, a, a very uh, a smart political consultant who who's who's been sort of fifty-fifty on Trump and the rest of the field, well, despite everything that's happening. So, because uh, you just have to look I at like the it. numbers. His numbers are soft. Mm-hmm. The top lines mask, and this is again. You just got to actually read these polls that give you uh, cross tabs. They're extremely valuable. This, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And it really does take, it'll take Donald Trump to undo himself. Nobody seems inclined to undo but Donald Trump. But uh, it's, it's quite deep among like 37%. About 25%. This is the thing about this poll yesterday. I'm, I'm digressing. But it told us exactly the same state of the race that we've been in for quite some time. There's about 25%. Donald Trump has 50% of the primary vote, right? Among them, about half of them say they will only vote for Donald Trump. And then there's another 25% of the Republican primary electorate that won't vote for any for Donald Trump under any circumstances. And then there's a vast middle that's persuadable that leans Trump. That's where we've been. It's where we've been for a very long time. But nobody's persuading the persuadables. They remain unpersuaded. That's where the battleground is going to be. But in, yeah. in some sense, that's because there is a bit of a tension between what you have to do to win over the different groups of persuadables. Because the people who aren't Trump supporters are... Uh, people who are divided among ideological conservatives, let's say Cruz-type voters, who are probably DeSantis voters now. And then you have a bunch of non-Trump voters who are more like the John Kasich, John Huntsman, moderate Republican types, as opposed to conservatives who don't like Trump. Um, So it is tricky in terms of the winning over the things that you need to do to win over the persuadable Trump voters um, are different than the things Look, that you need to do to be palatable to the non-Trump voters. Nobody's unlocked this yet, but it's also because there hasn't been a lot of trying. The problem that anti-Trump voices face is that quite a lot of the things that make him unviable in a general, or at least challenging in a general, make him very viable in a primary. And it has a lot to do with the fact that there's a perception that the universe is out to get him. And the equal, the uh, corollary to that is that you have to support him to justify the unfairness of the universe, to balance the scales of justice cosmically. Uh, And this is, uh, but the problem is that 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 was a little bit more abstract in 2016 and even 2020. It's far more concrete now that the biggest problem that he's facing, the biggest liability, are federal criminal allegations that will be litigated in a court of law throughout 2024. Donald Trump will spend a lot of time in and out of courtrooms arguing for his freedom. This is the sort of thing that will register with Republican voters at a certain point. And somebody's going to make the case at a certain point. Like when? Uh, you mean I would, say, I would say it should be sooner rather than later. Phil's right. You mean, it, trepidation. You mean it, it, it'll register that this is going to happen as opposed to this is 
that it actually happens and registers. It's a lot, yeah, you know Donald, I mean? to the extent Donald Trump was facing legal liabilities in 2020 and 2016, they were civil, and they had far fewer electoral consequences. And a, and a lot of this was about impeachment, so this is very political. Um, courtroom proceedings are very different. We're not going to be privy to them. But the fact pattern that's going to be established in a court of law is far harder to argue around with rhetorical slights of hand and, uh, you know, flourishes and affectation of being, you know, persecuted. It's a direct threat to the idea that this guy is viable in a general election. And a, Republican, a lot of Republican voters are going to want to roll the dice. But somebody out there is going to say, it is a gamble. And you're risking a lot on this gamble. And there are other safer bets. Um, I do think that dynamic is going to play out. It hasn't yet. And I don't think we can escape it. It's if it's left to the general to be litigated, then it will be an absolute killer. The primary will be where Donald Trump is inoculated on these charges politically or whether it undoes him. So DeSantis. Uh, DeSantis is more likely to return to the Sunshine State ignominiously at this, at right now. But um, I still think he's he's got a chance to, to pull this out, whether he'll be as unpopular, say, as uh, Chris Christie was at the end of his term in New Jersey. I kind of find that hard to believe because it would take a domestic, or rather a, a, a Florida-based scandal mm -hmm. to really really push him over the edge, but doesn't mean he doesn't have it in him. So, Jim, we got a 75 and a 55% on the board for Donald Trump. I am in the neighborhood of Phil. I'll put it at 70. I don't think 75, 80 feels kind of crazy. You know, um, most of those who want to be the alternative to Trump have been in the race for a while. One factor that isn't getting a lot of discussion, and I wonder how much it'll be one. You notice Trump isn't leaving Florida very much. He, he does do the rallies every now and then, but he's not doing multiple stops in Iowa, multiple stops in New Hampshire. This is a very laid back front runner campaign. This is not one. It's conceivable to see somebody out hustling Trump. And I kind of wonder if at some point that catches up with him in certain states. Uh, again, this is, you know, kind of hanging your hat on a, um, a limited factor because I don't think anybody's going to say, well, he didn't visit my, my, you know, my state enough, so I'm not going to vote for him. But I do kind of wonder if some other candidate might surprise us by doing twice as many events and just getting out there and out hustling. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, probably 70% chance Trump is the nominee. And as for DeSantis, I'm just going to like, Life is not kind to people who lose to Donald Trump. Uh, you look at most of the candidates from 2016, a whole bunch of them left politics. Uh, I ran into Scott Walker about a year after the primary at CPAC. Man, did he seem relaxed. <laughs> Man, did he seem like a happy person to be away from the world of running for office in politics. And I think that... Uh, I think quiet retirement is what awaits most people. And also, like the flip side, look at how Democrats felt about Hillary Clinton when she failed to slay the dragon. I think there'll be a whole bunch, like the whole bunch of people really saw Ron DeSantis as uh, on a white, either a white knight riding in on a horse to who's going to, you know, save and who's going to save the day. And if he flops in that, I think there'll be a lot of people who feel like, you know, what have you done for me lately, Ron DeSantis? Yeah, so I was a 70% on Trump prior to the latest chapter of this race. I'll, I'll go up to 80. Now, the the problem, I mean, there, there are a couple problems. I mean, he's still, he's beloved by Republican voters. He, he feels stronger. He's more entertaining uh, than the than the other candidates. And just how, how are you going to clear this field, you know, before Iowa or, or New Hampshire, which just adds another layer 
of difficulty and uh, complexity to the challenge to him. So, you know, th- there's still there's still time and Iowa very often looks different two weeks out from the caucuses than it did you know, the whole year prior. So I, I do not discount someone surging there. And obviously it's it's all important because if he's, he's not getting taken down in Iowa, he's probably not getting taken down uh, pretty much anywhere. DeSantis, I have to say, it's more likely that he'll be an unpopular governor. You can sort of feel it with the, the stories about people feeling he's neglecting the state. And that's just that's just difficult to recover from. And it's also very difficult uh, going to, to fill a scenario, you know, can he can he come back enough in this race that he's the the front runner in in twenty eight? I just think it's very hard uh, losing to uh, to maintain your your mojo and be the the next in in line <clears throat> four years from now. And you know, God knows what the uh, uh, what Republican politics will look like four years from now. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Babbel. Science says our ability to learn new languages peaks when we're children, but since you can't go back to being six years old, you've got the next best thing, Babbel. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in three weeks this summer. You can start speaking a new language almost immediately with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college with over 10 million subscriptions sold. Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash editors. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash editors, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash editors. Rules and restrictions may apply. Please check it out. So, Phil, we had Devin Archer's testimony behind closed doors yesterday. Republicans and Democrats came out saying different things and drawing different conclusions. It turned out that, uh, indeed, as anticipated, Miranda Devine at the Post had the scoop scoop on this about a week ago, that that Archer says that Hunter would, would put Joe as vice president on the phone with his business clients, but the Democratic spin on this, it was fine because one, Devin says he was just selling the illusion of access, meaning that that Joe wasn't actually um, making any commitments to, to bend, bend policy for these people. And Joe just engaged in a pleasant chit chat about the weather. So no harm, no foul. What do you make of it? I think it's crazy, and it, it's just a sort of insane moving of the goalpost, because for years we had, well, Biden had no involvement in it. He wasn't aware about what Hunter was doing. Hunter was doing his own thing. Um, and now we got to the point where Democrats are conceding that Biden over 20 times spoke to Hunter's business associates, hopped on the phone. 
And they're saying, oh, they were just ex exchanging pleasantries and so forth. I mean, this is, it's obvious what's happening here. I mean, you, you don't have to uh, be an experience, you know, know too much about this to, to see what is actually going on when the vice president's son is earning millions of dollars from all sorts of people all around the world in areas where um, Joe Biden as vice president has power over and influence over. And then just somehow, what did Joe Biden think when all of a sudden he'd just get random calls from his, from, uh, from a hunter and he'd be asked to hop on the phone and say hi to all these new friends that hunters making around the world. I mean, it, it's completely absurd. It's obvious that, um, Joe Biden doesn't need to get into the nitty gritty of how this deal is going to go down to just sort of show, um, that hunter has access to him. And, I think that even the facts that we know now that Democrats would readily admit to are quite damning because even if Biden, you, obviously the worst case scenario is definitive proof that Biden, Joe Biden himself accepted bribes in order to um, do the bidding of foreign actors, right? That, that's the most extreme version of the theory of what's going on. But you don't even have to get there for it to be bad. Even if he was sort of using, you know, saying hi to people and, and playing up this influence peddling game um, so that his druggy son um, would have something to do and could earn a living, it's still sort of using abuse of power because it's still using his position um, for his personal benefit, for the benefit of his family, right? Like if you found something to do, a way for your son to make a living off of your position, you're still, um, it, it's still benefiting you. You're still deriving something from it, even if it's not direct monetary compensation. Um, and so, uh, Biden, Joe Biden has tried to make it like he had no idea what's going on with Hunter. He's just going around the world, evidently earning millions of dollars for his vast experience in Ukrainian energy. And as you know, and Hunter, you know, Joe just has no idea. And just all these random people start popping on the phone. Um, it, it's just completely absurd. And I, I, I don't really think that these this defense is going to hold up against anyone who's not already just tied to to Biden. Yeah, no. So let's, uh, as Phil did at the end there, let's just accept this illusion of access construct. If your son is benefiting from the illusion of access, and you help provide him the illusion for access, that is obviously a form of corruption. Now, maybe it's you know, not bad as bad as an outright bribe, but it's still sleazy and wrong. Yeah, it's not a defense, and it's insulting to even posit it as a defense. There, we've evolved now to the point where the best argument that Democrats can field to defuse these allegations is that Hunter Biden was just a con man. He was a flim-flam artist. 
He wasn't selling anything real. He was lying to his clients. And Joe Biden implicitly, tacitly participated in the con. His presence, his, his gravitas, <clears throat> and his connections in government lent weight and credence to the grift that they admit now Hunter Biden was engaged in. Back in January, the New York Times sort of tried to inoculate Joe Biden against all this by establishing the predicate upon which now the Times can say that Joe Biden's contacts with Hunter Biden's uh, business associates has long been known since January. But they established the baseline, at which point we could say that this gets to Hunter Biden. Quote, Republicans have yet to demonstrate that senior the senior Mr. Biden, was involved in his son's business deals or took any action to benefit him from his foreign partners. Well, part one of that's done. Mr. Biden was involved in his son's business deals. To what degree, to what extent, still unknown. But by getting on this phone 20 times only to talk about the weather, according to uh, Representative Goldman, um, he was involving himself here. The White House's claim is that this is all nonsense, that this is just overhyped. In a quote from... Ian Sams, a spokesman for investigations at the White House, who said that this testimony by Devin Archer was a, a flop because he couldn't prove that Joe Biden discussed business with his son, even though he was involved, or did anything wrong at all. Well, that's just simply not true. His presence in, in these conversations was wrong. It was influence peddling. He contributed to uh, uh, his son's uh, efforts to... Uh, to mislead his clients and enrich himself. Maybe that's not a crime, but it is immoral. And it certainly uh, undoes a lot of the efforts that Democrats have made over the course of the last several months to say there's just no there there. There obviously is a there there. Jim. Rich, Noah, Phil, you're all missing it because you have fallen for the illusion. You see, it looked like access. But in fact, it was all smoke and mirrors. You see, Hunter Biden would tell his business partners, pick a card, any card, like it's a Las Vegas stage act. And then he would call up his father and through the sheer psychic power of his mind, Joe Biden would identify what card the business partner had selected. It's illusion, I tell you. <laughs> um, like we're, we're seeing some particularly epic gaslighting. And that line that uh, Noah just referred to, the idea that all of a sudden the New York Times is saying it's long been known that the elder Mr. Biden at times interacted with his son's business partners. No, it's not. <laughs> it's been vehemently denied. Joe Biden insisted he had never had any interaction with. They never talked business. And now we find out, oh, he was on the phone 20 times, but it was just to talk about the weather. Now, I don't want to re reiterate what everybody else had said, but the best case for scenario for Joe Biden the explanation that is most exculpatory and puts Biden on the hook the least is that this was an influence peddling operation with no actual influence to peddle and that basically Hunter Biden was fraudulently telling his business partners, I can get you uh, the opportunity to change U.S. policies. My dad can make it happen. Don't worry. Uh, this is all going to be a really, you know, uh, smooth, easy deal. The And, you know, we put him on the phone. They talk about the weather. Yeah, well, here's the thing. What's interesting, we don't know what those business partners said. But if you, again, why are you on the phone with the vice president? You just want to chat with them? You just want to talk about the weather? You know, it's not the National Weather Service. But <laughs> secondly, this claim that, oh, it's the illusion of act. No, if you're putting the vice president on the phone with someone, 
That's not the illusion of access. That's access. Most of us can't get the, the vice president or the former vice president or the future president, as Joe Biden was, on the phone with us. The other thing is, is that we have this separate uh, report from Gary Shapley, who's the IRS supervisor who's become a whistleblower, telling House lawmakers that Hunter Biden was often telling his business partners that they had better pay his clients. They'd better pay up. Otherwise, he and his dad were going to cause trouble. The transcript is, quote, I am sitting here with my father and we'd like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand and now means tonight. The quote continues, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, that means Joe Biden, and every person he knows, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, that's practically every, you know, uh, Democratic official in government, and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Yeah, the business, the business acumen there, the, the ability he has is to forever hold a grudge. That, that's what yeah, he brought well, to the table. <laughs> observing that, you know, for what it's worth, Joe Biden says he was not there. But we do know, I believe, through like phone geolocation or public photos of that day, that Hunter Biden was with his father, you know, that day. Now, whether they were in the same room is another story or something, but certainly Hunter Biden had not, you know, at, at minimum, he liked people believing that Joe Biden would do favors for his clients, that he could make things happen. And if you gave Hunter Biden a lot of money, he and his dad would make things happen. But if you didn't pay him, you tried to stiff him. Well, then who knows? Maybe the entire federal government would come down on you like a ton of bricks. Like this, you know, even if you want to say, oh, Joe Biden was oblivious to this, that's still a very big Joe Biden problem if the vice president's son is running around telling people he can get policies changed in exchange for enough money. So, Phil, I'll ask a question to you. Let's double barrel it once again. Will House Republicans eventually impeach President Joe Biden? And should House Republicans eventually impeach Joe Biden? I, I'd say yes. I do think they eventually impeach him. Um, should they? I think it depends on the evidence. My inclination is that in the modern age, every impeachment just gets dismissed as a partisan exercise and backfires. So I'd say you better, I would only favor it if you really have the goods. Noah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so far, I think Republicans have been smart in keeping their powder relatively dry. Um, James Comer has uh, gotten over his skis relatively few times. Uh, he continues to advertise a conclusion that is not yet supported by the evidence uh, on offer, but they're only entertaining the prospect of an impeachment uh, proceeding if they can prove something like bribery or emoluments, which is the precise remedy for that. So, so far, so good. Um, and yeah, I think eventually... They'll pull the trigger on it. Hopefully, like Phil says, they'll have the goods. Jim. Um, I noticed that Donald Trump wants Joe Biden impeached yesterday and is pledging he will lead primary challenges against any House Republican that does not vote to impeach Joe Biden. Now, I think what we have here is something that raises to the level, potentially raises to the level of impeachment. I want to fill in some blanks. But secondly, if you've got a, you know, you, you caught your opponent with their hand in the cookie jar, you don't just use it all at once in a, you know, impeachment effort, you know, is going nowhere in the Senate. No, no, no. You want to drip, drip, drip this. You want this to, you want to drag this out. You want to slowly, you want to have as many embarrassing and serious he uh, headlines as possible. 
So I don't think there's any reason to rush into this. I think you say, well, look, this, these are deeply troubling allegations that require further investigation. What we know now is already bad enough, but I feel like there's more that is yet to be uncovered. And you just keep going with this and you just trying to create this, you know, this drumbeat over and over again to the point where the attitude of the American public is not, oh, could you believe you're trying to imp impeach uh, Biden? You want to reach the point where like, huh, why haven't they impeached Biden yet? Yeah, I tend to think they will impeach him. I think it's just it's the, where the logic of this thing is heading, and they'll eventually open an impeachment inquiry just to uh, be more honest about what they're doing rather than, you know, Pelosi had an impeachment inquiry going for some time the first time around without admitting it and, uh, you know, creating more authority for uh, their investigations. And then you're not going to just come back and say, oh, you know, we didn't find anything or, you know, it's not that bad. So if, if McCarthy gets the votes, which might be tricky because there are going to be some um, folks from relatively moderate districts who aren't going to want to do this, but I think eventually they'll, they'll end up in, uh, going ahead and doing it. And you can't answer the second part of the question, as Phil rightly points out, without knowing what the, the evidence is. And, and maybe they'll get evidence that, that'll make this a worthwhile initiative. But I basically think you shouldn't impeach anyone unless you have some chance of, of something shaken loose in the, the Senate. And it seems unlikely that circumstance will ever be there. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode. Fast-growing trees. This summer, you could spend thousands of dollars on planes, hotels, and tourist traps, or you can spend less money on a beautiful garden that will give you years of pleasure with FastGrowingTrees.com. FastGrowingTrees.com has thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrubs, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs, from Meyer lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around with FastGrowingTrees.com. You order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. No green thumb, no problem. Fast-growing trees, plant experts are just a Zoom chat or phone call away, always available and eager to help. They can even walk you through your entire garden to help solve problems you're having with plants and trees. Plus, fast-growing trees, plant experts have specialized degrees and training to help troubleshoot from root to leaf. It's like telehealth for your plants. And with fast-growing trees, 30-day alive and thrive guarantee you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Join almost 2 million happy fast-growing trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash editors now to get 15% off your entire order. 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash editors. Please check it out. So no, let's make like Joe Biden on the phone with the sleazy foreign businessman and talk about the weather. There's been a lot of talk about the weather because we have this heat wave in parts of the United States. You read about this the other day. It is, of course, Republicans who are to blame and Republicans have it in their power to end heat waves in the United States if only they would get on board Democratic climate change legislation. Yeah, I don't know what, I mean, I guess this is the in inevitable logic of their efforts to popularize existential climate change anxiety. Um, but talking about your political opponents like they're omnipotent deities and sort of uh, vengeful deities as well. So I don't know how that advances your prospects, but this is what they've landed on. Hillary Clinton last week decided to go out and, and you know, tag a Center for American Progress piece that only implied that Republicans were in control of the weather. 
and made it explicit. She said, hot enough for you? Thank a MAGA Republican, or better yet, vote them out of office. Um, the logic of that was rather deficient, but then you saw a just full court press in media trying to fill in the blanks for her. CNN, Bloomberg News, The Guardian, which is sort of a, a usual suspect. Um, but all of them sort of a, attempted to attribute the weather to Republican policies, or rather the lack of Republican policies, because they haven't rolled over for whatever the latest climate change bill is. Which, by the way, I remember writing about once they passed this um, uh, masquerade, this climate change bill, under the guise that it would uh, address um, uh, inflation. I, I remember writing at the time that nobody would remember that this happened in the space of a year, because what people want, what Democrats want, what progressives want isn't incremental change. They don't want subsidies for green programs. They want the weather to change. And legislation is not going to change the weather. So you have all these reports now from CNN saying Republicans are in a climate bind because it's hot now and people don't like it when it's hot, so they're going to blame Republicans. The Bloomberg News piece by Ari Natter even wished this into existence, saying um, that uh, inaction by Republicans, quote, could present political peril for Republicans as floods, wildfires, and heat waves affect more Americans, meaning that they're attempting to incept into the public imagination that you should blame the GOP whenever there's a natural disaster. It is about as cynical a strategy as you can get. They don't fill in the blanks. They don't demonstrate why this Republican initiative or that inaction on this particular bill contributed meaningfully to heat-trapping emissions in the atmosphere because they can't, because it's absurd. It's patently obvious that this is a messaging strategy. And, and the press, to their credit, a lot of Democrats aren't taking Hillary Clinton up on her uh, nonsense here, but the press is running out and, and performing a, a block for her because I think they're just embarrassed by how she bungled this effort. So they want to just, you know, they want to try to run the ball forward. It's insulting um, but it, it demonstrates at least how shallow this commitment to environmental remediation under the guise of climate change initiatives really is. It's a messaging strategy against the GOP full stop, not an effort to save the planet or whatever. Yeah, so Jim, there, there are a couple of problems with this, with this narrative. One, even if you enact the Green New Deal, the effect it would have on global temperatures, you know, 80 years from now would almost be undetectable. So we are in a, a phase of, of global warming. We are slowly getting warmer and uh, it's going to be hotter sometimes because of that. But the the coverage never notes that I think this is the maybe the 10th or 11th or 12th, some, somewhere in their hottest July on record in the United States. You had um, a lot of times in the 1930s when it was hotter, I think once uh, 1980 or in, in, the, in the 80s. So they, they always leave that out. And then they, they always... Um, make it out like people only die from from heat and the heat's going to get worse and more people are going to die and leave out the part where the the winters will also get milder and more people actually die from cold so if you're you're making it warmer in the winter that's actually going to be uh, good good for for uh, uh, for for people and then there there's just sort of the the presumption that we can't do anything to mitigate there there's no human invention that could possibly make it 
easier and more comfortable to live in a warm climate, you know, like called air conditioning. <laughs> I was just looking up the numbers for Phoenix, which has been, you know, hammered in this heat wave, I guess has had uh, uh, a stretch there was a, above 110 every day or, or something like that. People continue to move to Phoenix in droves, which they presumably wouldn't do if they realized it was uh, or thought it was truly unlivable. Well, before we, you know, we were talking about which topics we should talk about on this podcast, Rich, I feel like I should let listeners know that I said that, you know, yeah, we should talk about the weather because it was this old newsroom saying, you know, everybody reads about the weather because it affects everybody. If you're in for a really bad heat wave, people are going to want to talk about that. If you're in for, you know, really heavy storms and winds that are going to knock down trees, people want to get like, it's the one thing that affects everybody. Kind of like inflation to bring us full circle to our, our earlier topic. Um, this is so on the one hand, it's not surprising. There's a big heat wave. Uh, Democratic Party and its allies want to tie their messaging to what's on people's minds. Now, you mentioned that you uh, believe in cli believe climate change is real rich, and based on my experience, you'll get a lot of messages telling you, oh my goodness, you're a liberal sellout, how dare you, you're falling for the hoax, blah, blah, blah. One of the reasons I think that there is so much, uh, I don't say so, but, you know, but like, I think about 25% of the country says they do not believe in climate change and believe that it's a hoax, is that the argument which I find very plausible, that having 8 billion people on the planet generating more carbon than they did when there was 7 billion or 6 billion or 5 billion, putting more carbon into the atmosphere, it affects the climate. It, you know, Even this planet as large as Earth, you do it on a large enough scale, eventually more carbon into the atmosphere, clouds get heavier, you get more intense storms and things like that. Um, the problem is, is that when you hear this messaging from the left and from Hollywood and all kinds of celebrity activists and things like that, it is... The there's more carbon in the atmosphere. The climate is changing. Ergo, you must vote for Democrats and you must donate to these groups and you must uh, stop eating that fast food meal. And you're not allowed to use a SUV to drive your family around. And you're just supposed to, allowed to use a bicycle. Good luck for you if you need to you know, carry around construction equipment or something like that. And it quickly turns into from this argument about is this happening to is this happening? What do you have to do about it? whether or not you're actually generating that much carbon into the atmosphere. Oh, by the way, every celebrity activist who takes a private jet to one of these climate change conferences is generating way more carbon than you are, and they never seem to be willing to give up their luxuries in life. But you, ordinary citizen, you're the one who's expected to live in a pod and eat bugs and do all these things in order to save the planet. Um, so it's not surprising. They, like, if, you, know, you treat something like a political football – People will treat it like a political football, and they will tune it out, and they will not uh, not pay much attention to it. Now, I do think you look at this, you, you know, year by year, summer by summer. Yeah, summers are getting hotter. Thunderstorms do get do seem to get more intense. Now, some of this is a reflection of, of you know just other changes that are going on. For example, whatever time is there, this hurricane did more damage than any other you know more you know millions of dollars of damage than uh, than any other hurricane before. Well, yeah, it's because of the last hurricane, you built the house twice as big at twice the cost. Uh, some of that, you, sometimes what you think you're measuring is not what you're actually measuring. But you know, if you uh, if you have higher trees, more of them are going to come down, get you know blown down by the wind when a big uh, storm or hurricane comes through here. That having been said, I think it's safe to say we do see exhibitions of this, and um, there are policy steps we can take to make our communities more resilient and more able to handle that. For example, if you want to give you know, or provide low-cost air conditioning to every every elderly uh, family in the or household in the uh, state of Arizona, maybe that makes sense. 
Maybe you don't want to have people out there trying to get by without help, uh, without air conditioning. But we can do that. It's a heck of a lot easier than say, okay, everybody stop using internal combustion engines. So, Phil, I, I do think we are experiencing global warming, but I do not accept the, the science as it is presented to us. I have a huge element of cynicism and skepticism about it that's only grown, as we've talked about a little bit on the, the podcast over the last couple of years, with what we saw with how information was was controlled and manipulated around COVID. You, you know this well, you followed it. You know, there'd be a study somewhere saying, you know, if a kid, uh, second grader, put on an N95 mask perfectly, uh, it was a perfect fit. It was applied in, in the right way. It was changed, you know, three times during the course of the day. It, it might might help uh, uh, mitigate slightly the, uh, the spread of COVID in a, in a given school. And that's translated, you know, th- through the filter of advocacy and through the, the journalism into kids got to wear masks in schools, you know, are people going to die? And it's kind of the same thing, you know, I'm making this up, but, you know, there, there's probably a study, there's a, the, the influence of global warming makes it 10% more likely there'll be heat waves in Phoenix. You know, heat waves aren't actually a new phenomenon in, in Phoenix. And, and that, that is filtered through advocacy and journalism to global warming is solely responsible for uh, for what's happening in Phoenix and and we we, we as as a society and legislatures we, we have control of the the weather and climate dials and as Noah was pointing out if only Republicans would j- just weren't so evil and wanted to turn down the the global thermostat a couple degrees we could take care of this problem. Yeah. So what I find uh, amusing is that whenever. Um, we have a really severe cold wave or a polar vortex or blizzards uh, in the winter and conservatives sort of troll uh, leftists a bit and say, oh, ha ha, so much for global warming, you know, showing photos of icicles and things, you know, weather reports from Wisconsin where it's 40 below and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the left always says, oh, these ignorant, conservatives they don't understand that there's a difference between weather and climate and it doesn't matter what the daily weather is it matters what the overall global temperature changes so if that's the case how come every time there's a heat wave we're talking about how oh this shows an effect about climate change or every time there's a hurricane oh this is only happening because of climate change um so really they're they're trying to have it uh, both ways Um, I think that by observable data that we have access to, global temperatures have gone up. And there's reason to believe that this was um, exacerbated by human activity. But I think the the issue are two things. One is, what are the long-term consequences of this? There's a, a range of predictions is it going to be half the world is flooding and there's going to be massive hurricanes everywhere all the time and we're all going to be living underwater like some of the doomsday people say? Um, or are there certain subtle changes that we're going to adapt to over time? On, the, uh, on top of this, it seems like with COVID, uh, to use that example, the solution is always we have to massively change human behavior and change um, and make massive changes based on 
computer models and projections uh, that may not come true, but we have to endure massive sacrifices. So we went through a period where people were saying, we all saw those models where COVID's going to do this and its hospitals are going to go to this. And, and of those people in the hospital, if it goes above the capacity, the death rates are going to be this. And if we lock down, then it's going to be smoothed over and it's not going to be as bad and our hospitals won't get overwhelmed. None of that turned out to be true. The models turned out to complete, be completely off. Um, and, the remedies didn't work. I mean, there's just not enough evidence that um, massively locking down people and the huge effects that it had actually helped mitigate the virus um, and the spread of the virus. Um, so I think that the danger is, as you say, Rich, uh, making a similar stake here where we're making demanding drastic sacrifices on the public um, when it's unclear if they're going to have any effect on anything. Um, so to me, um, I mean, I find it kind of amusing because to the left, they have the, this sort of mirror image of this argument, which is to them, COVID proved that if we ignore nature and don't listen to scientists, then we're going to be stuck with you know, these massive consequences. Um, but to me, it's sort of like, maybe we just had a lesson in you don't try to shut down society, modern society, to try to control nature, because maybe it's not going to really work. Can I just tag so, something that you said there, Phil? Yeah. Because yeah. this whole effort to ramp up climate change anxiety, and as and as uh, Paul Krugman said two weeks ago in the New York Times, politicize the weather, which is the title of his piece, it it can't be divorced from what you're talking about, the flaws in the research, the failure of peer review to catch so many errors, the inability of the IPCC to predict the future in ways that actually materialize. In 2021, the Washington Post described how how much climate researchers had erred in the assumption about how much carbon was captured by the central soil in Central African Republic and the trees in Vietnam and what have you. And they had the following quote, climate change negotiators have known for decades that this data gathering process is flawed, but instead they have focused on persuading global leaders to engage in serious talks and real steps to rein in emissions. What? You just let that one slide? That this whole world-changing mission that you're on to, to alter the way humanity interacts with its environment in just about every possible way is predicated on false data, and you just glide past that? How dare you? Everybody should be skeptical of this, especially given the scope of its ambitions. So, Jim Garrity, extra question to you. Just as a matter of sheer personal preference, putting everything else aside, just personal preference, would you rather live in a place experiencing extreme cold or extreme heat. And I ask this as someone who saw you with my own eyes experience extreme heat in Memphis, Tennessee, after a whole afternoon walking across whatever bridge it was into Arkansas and back. Yeah, that was that was pretty intense. Uh, turns out that you can't get Ubers back from the Arkansas side. <laughs> 
And in addition to all the other challenges, like literally sweat was dripping off me so much, I was constantly having to wipe the screen of my cell phone because <laughs> I'm desperately trying to get a signal out there. Um, perhaps it comes from spending summers and going down to visit Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I find the escapability of summer heat easier than escaping winter cold. I don't know the ubiquitousness of air conditioning, uh, ice cream, swimming in pools, going to the beach, all the different ways uh, that you can get out of the heat. I, I find it easier than winter where it feels like, you know, no matter how much you turn up the thermostat, mm -hmm. it's still it kind of chilly. It gets truly out warm. Yeah. Phil? I'd say, um, yeah, I used to be, would used to at one point vote for cold. Um, but I think I'd prefer heat just because, you know, I still have the option to go outdoors. And, and also the thing is like you could, uh, I mean, now I wear like, SPF shirts and pants and a hat and I, I could kind of protect myself from the environment. Um, it's just, I burn very easily. So I really hate, um, hate it. But this the conversation kind of reminds me of the famous twilight zone episode, the midnight sun where they're boiling and they're, they're sweating from the blazing sun and then at the end, you realize it's all a dream and they're actually going, living in a world where the sun's moving further from the earth and everyone's freezing. Noah. I'm going to say that because it's easier to get warm than it is to get cool, I'm going to, not because I'm a big fan of cold weather, I'm going to pick cold weather, but... That's predicated on the assumption that I can continue to combust fossil fuels and get warm mm -hmm. as fast as I yes. possibly want. And we need to do, we need to, whether, whether you're keeping warm or keeping cold, you do need to uh, combust fossil fuels. So I, I'd rather experience the extreme heat, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago. I'm a, less, a little less pro heat than I used to be, but still, I just hate the feeling of bone chilling cold. Just, just hate it. So I'm, I'm with, uh, Phil and Jim, and I'm going with heat. Speaking of bringing the heat, let me do a plug for NR Plus, a digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall, your way to see about 90% fewer ads if you sign up and log in. Your way to become a much more engaged member of our community if you want to. You don't have to, but you can comment on articles and blog posts. You can get invited to exclusive events. Speaking of Memphis, we had a meet and greet at a, a wonderful Irish bar there in downtown Memphis with NR Plus members a couple weeks ago. We do all sorts of uh, exclusive calls with our members as well. So it's a great deal all around and most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member of NR Plus, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers who are members, and do it today or tomorrow or the day after. Not going to be very picky about the timing, but would appreciate it greatly if you'd pay a little something, not a lot, just a little something for what you read at NR. Let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah Rothman, you guys have discovered a beer garden that you like. That's right. We're more, I am more of a wine person than a beer person. 
And wineries are a lovely time to get, you know, family and friends together. And we have a couple of them, but they're just okay when it comes to the actual wine. Um, you can brew a pretty solid beer with a lot fewer inputs. And there aren't a ton of really big, expansive you know, Bavarian-style beer gardens around here, like I remember when I was uh, spending the early part of my career in places like Jersey City and Union City and Hoboken, where they have these sort of things. But we found one across the border in Pennsylvania, where life is better. And mm -hmm. uh, it was definitely a blast, and I intend to go back. It's good. It's a good time for the, you know, kids and stuff, because you could just let them go nuts. And they're in a fenced-in area. It's a very controlled environment. It's, it's valuable. So, Jim, you are back at Space Camp. Yes, this is the uh, facility out at Wallops Island in near Chincoteague. Uh, I have a tendency to mispronounce it as Chincoteague. Uh, we also went up to Assateague, which is on the it's not, Maryland it's not side. It's not Chincoteague? So, I, I, at least the way it's, it's written, ch uh, Chicno, with a C-H-I-N-C. So, anyway. Um, point being, however you pronounce it. Uh, it is, you know, this cute little charming beach community that, oh, by the way, just happens to have this fairly sizable NASA facility, mm -hmm. which they use to shoot up satellites. In fact, I think, is it tonight they're supposed to, sometime this week they're supposed to launch one, which will give my uh, younger son a, a great excitement as he's at space camp near that facility. The other thing I'm going to observe, did you realize that, like, Maryland is just absolutely full of cornfields? It, it parts, feels parts like... Maryland, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it feels like coastal Iowa. I looked it up. 62 million bushels of corn yeah. uh, for grain were harvested from 380,000 acres. And it feels like we drove past all of them on the ride there and back. I don't know whether you're a Wes Anderson guy, but you should see, you should see Asteroid City, which has a space camp theme to it. So tonight there's actually a supermoon. Got that, Jim? Interested in a supermoon and a... Uh, uh, you know, and a rocket launch in one day. That's, you know, NASA it's knows crazy. what it's doing. It's crazy. So, Phil Klein, you recently picked up something about the movie Goodfellas you had not noticed previously. Yeah, I'm a big movie fan, and the Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies. I've seen it dozens of times, and it, it's not Like great. literally dozens? Dozens, no question, easily. And so... It's not often that you learn something new, but I had watched it recently, and so I was reading some behind-the-scenes type of um, stories on it. Um, and I realized there's this famous shot in the movie, which is probably one of the most famous shots in the history of movies, where it's, it, it shows um, Henry Hill, the protagonist, gangster, sneaking his future wife um, on their first date, through the an alternate entrance into the Copacabana nightclub to get away from the line. And Scorsese's shot takes you from the street all the way to their table in like three minutes of one continuous shot, where they seemingly wander through the kitchen to get into the nightclub, the nightclub ballroom. But I realized this time, reading it up on it, that actually... They had no reason to go into the kitchen that the, the, they actually exit the same door that they enter into in that scene and that the cinematographer just wanted them to go into the kitchen because it was well lit and white and that provided more contrast for the shot. And so in it, the, you know, he starts talking to the chefs and people in the, in the kitchen to try to 
kind of, and the camera moves around to kind of distract people from this point. And it worked because I've seen the movie so many times and I never would have noticed it if I hadn't read it. So anyway, it's kind of fun to, to learn something when you thought you knew everything about a movie. Yeah. So speaking of movies, I saw Barbie and my really f- fine-grained uh, c- cinematic take on this was that it sucked. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, the, the pink uh, world, which some people are kind of charmed by, I found annoying. It is a flat-out feminist screed. It does have some genuinely amusing moments. And as Jack Butler pointed out, Ryan Gosling really uh, steals this this movie. He he plays for all it's worth the the Ken doll, who's the uh, n- neglected uh, male in the uh, the Barbie world ru- ruled by uh, women, and then stereotypical Barbie played by Margot Robbie finds out the real world, which he expects to be just just the same, is not like that. And Ryan Gosling also goes back to the real world and finds out, no, actually, guys rule, and then comes back and takes over Barbie world in a, a horrible. Uh, um, uh, masculine coup, and there's some 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 funny stuff, but it really doesn't make it uh, worthwhile. Not that anyone cares what I or any other conservative critics say. I saw this on the the second weekend on uh, a, a Saturday, totally sold out, totally sold out. So this thing is a a cultural juggernaut. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, once again, a lot of strong competitors, but I feel almost obligated to mention the House editorial today, the COVID cover-up. This focuses less on the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself and more on the, quote, proximal origin, unquote, paper put out by several eminent virologists on COVID-19. Basically, this is a very big step in poo-pooing the lab leak theory and making it sound like only nutty, crazy conspiracy theorists could possibly think that the Chinese government could be doing dangerous experiments, gain-of-function experiments in which they take existing bat coronaviruses and make them more virulent and more contagious. But hey, there's no way it could possibly be connected to that outbreak that just happened a little bit down the street. Um, I, look, my to me, the preeminent villain in the story of COVID-19 is China, is the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the Chinese government, and I, you know, is there good reason to gripe at uh, Anthony Fauci and whether he testified honestly about this? Yes. Is there a whole, you know, does it look very much like these eminent virologists basically like, look, we don't want to deal with that possibility. Too many headaches come out of that. So we're going to act like there's no way this could happen, even though we personally think this could have happened. And in fact, I think one person puts it at 60-40. Look, you know, I, I think these people deserve to get raked over the coals, but I don't want to see people get completely wrapped up in blaming Americans for what is ultimately a Chinese government-caused catastrophe. Uh, But anyway, it's a very good editorial. Everybody should read it. No, Rothman, what's your pick? It's going to be the cover on the latest issue by Jack Butler. Is your doctor racist? Um, The answer to that is probably no. But the medical establishment isn't so sure. Um, uh, Jack does a really good job of outlining how the uh, how what West Yang calls the successor ideology, a framework through which uh, you should filter all events, you, applying the prism of race uh, to understand your environment and to prescribe remedies for inequities in your environment, mostly uh, discrimination to remedy the effects of discrimination. Butler does a really good job of outlining how this uh, ideology uh, has captured and held hostage the medical establishment, particularly in medical schools, and what it's doing to dumb down 
um, medicine in this country. It's a it's a great read. It's a frightening read, and I recommend it. So, Klein. So I'm actually going to recommend another podcast, which is Charlie's podcast uh, this week, uh, in which he talked to Andrew Roberts, who's just a great historian, wrote excellent biographies of Napoleon and Winston Churchill um, and others. And it's just for those who like history, it's just a a really great uh, conversation with someone who's who's just... uh, written some really uh, great biographies. My pick is Dan McLaughlin from the print magazine, William Jennings, Brian's Subtractive Populism, teasing out some uh, warnings for the contemporary GOP about populism from the experience of Brian. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, count this game without the express written permission of National U magazine. It's strictly... Prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to Babel and Fast Growing Trees. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.